This morning, we are going to finish up our ser- sermon series we've been doing on leadership in the kingdom, meaning how does leadership work amongst God's people in the church. And we're going to do that with a little in a little different way. Maybe you've already picked up that instead of a sermon by me, you're going to get to hear from four of our elders, including two of our newest elders that we prayed over last week. When I started out with this sermon series, I actually didn't have this in mind. It, it kind of came to me about halfway through, like it would be very helpful for for you all and to, to kind of hear from our elders. And one of the idea of the, the, the spiritual leaders of the church is that they're able to, to teach and communicate God's word. And so each of them are, are different in kind of what God puts on their heart. So I, I hope you get to hear that this morning. I did create, if you are trying to figure out, especially if you're new here, how does leadership work at, at East Glenville Church? Your handout on one side is the the different elders who are going to speak. On the other side is our church constitution that talks about the senior pastor, the elder board, and and kind of the different responsibilities of each. And that might get you a a better idea of of just how, how things work within East Glenville Church. Next week, we're moving on to a new topic. We're going to go through Matthew 25. But for this morning, we'll start with... All right, one of our elders, Don Cranes. Thanks, Pastor Mitch. Okay, as I was thinking about this, uh, this opportunity this morning to, to speak, uh, one of the things I like to do is just talk about what I'm going through in the Word, in kind of my own private time in the Word. Um, right now, I'm working my way through the Old Testament, and so... Recently, I read through Leviticus. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to take a look at Leviticus. We're going to read through it. We're going to read through the whole thing. <laughs> Just kidding. Now, Leviticus is an interesting book. It's a tough book. It's, there's a lot of detail in there, a lot of in, stuff in there. And w- when I approached it, what I did is there's 27 chapters. Right. I can do this in three, three sessions. There's nine chapters per session. I'm just going to plow my way through it and try to look at it from a 50,000-foot level. So I did that. Um, but there are some thoughts, there are some things that, I can, that you can pull out of that, just taking a look, look at it from that level. First of all, what, where is Leviticus and what is it part of? It's part of uh, the Torah or the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. So you have Genesis where you know, God, it's the story of creation. God created mankind in his image. He created all of creation. Man failed to trust God. He, man fell into sin, and there were consequences to that, to, to society. Um, and Genesis introduces us to the family of God, the, the family that God intends to use to bless all nations. You learn about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their families and, and God's plan to bless all nations through them. And then Exodus, you have the story of, uh, that's the next book, you have the story of how the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt, and the story of Moses freeing them from bondage, bringing them to Mount Sinai, and establishing there on Mount Sinai a special relationship with his people, special relationship between God and his people. And in Exodus chapter 19, it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God is, is reaffirming this, this covenant he made with Abraham through Moses here, and this new special relationship where he's going to make his people a kingdom of priests to bless nations. And he sets up there in Exodus the tabernacle, which is kind of his meeting place. That's where God chooses to meet with his people there in the tabernacle. And his presence is there. You get the fire and the smoke, which is symbolic of God's presence. Okay, after, after Exodus, you have Leviticus, which we're going to talk about today. But just to talk about the other two books, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Numbers is the story of where God is leading his people through the desert on the way to the promised land and in the process teaching them some lessons that they're going to need um, to learn to trust God and to learn to be dependent upon him. And then Deuteronomy, which is um, a book that reminds them of the promises that they made and the terms of the relationship that they have and that you know, there's going to be blessings if you live according to this covenant that we've agreed to and there's going to be consequences if you don't. So Leviticus is right in the middle of those five books. And you could basically think of Leviticus as an instruction manual for the priests that were um, involved in worship of the tabernacle. You know. um, and like any instruction manual, it has a lot of detail um, and also has principles. So any good instruction manual is going to provide for a step that you need to follow. What is the principle behind that step so that you understand why you're doing what you're doing. Um, so Leviticus talks about the role of priests. Uh, remember, remember how it's going to be a kingdom of priests. So, all right, what are, the, what are the priests? What do they do? What's their responsibilities? And when you look at it, you see that basically a priest acts to reflect God to the people. So the priest, there's, there's, uh, there's robes that they had to wear, there's things that they had to wear to um, try to portray what God is like to the people. Um, the priests also were, they interceded between God and the people. So they gave the people access to God. And they made provision for the people to find God through atonement. Atonement is one of those big themes or things that you see in Leviticus. Atonement is basically where God is dealing with the problem of sin. The people were living in sin. They weren't perfect. They weren't holy. And that puts a barrier between them and God. But through the atonement, through sacrifices, through rituals, people through the priests were able to have access to God and restore that relationship that way. And another big theme in Leviticus is the word holy. The word holy is used 79 times in the book, more than any other book in the Bible. Um, and basically that word, it's from the Hebrew word kadesh, which means set apart, distinct, unique, consecrated, different, all of those things. So God is, through this tabernacle worship and through the priests, is showing his people how they can be distinct, unique, to reflect his glory. And just some of the scriptures I'm going to focus on, uh, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7, which reads, You must sanctify yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. You must be sure to obey my statutes. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So God is telling his people, I want you to be holy. I want you to be set apart. I want you to be distinct um, and sanctify yourselves. That word sanctify is basically 
setting apart. So God is working to sanctify and the people are also working to sanctify themselves, to be set apart, to be different. Uh, and then in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, it says, you must be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart from the other peoples to be mine. So the idea of being set apart. So what is, what is holy? God is, God is saying here that he is holy. Everything about him, every attribute about him is perfect. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. He's completely just. He's all-loving. In every aspect, he's perfect. He's holy in that sense. And he wants his people to be that way. We can't on our own strength, but he wants us to be heading in that direction. He wants us to be to be just, to be loving, to be pure, um, to reflect who he is to the world. And he calls us to share in that holiness. So how does this apply to us today? Obviously, this is not the tabernacle, the tent of meeting that was used back in Exodus and Leviticus. Um, what is the church today? We, well, we know that the blessing through Abraham extends to us today. We are all children of Abraham if we have come to trust the provision of Christ for us on the cross. And just as the people were led out of bondage in Egypt into a new relationship with God, we, through faith in Christ, can be led out of our bondage to sin into a new relationship with God. And what's the tabernacle today? It's, it's the church, right? The, God doesn't indwell a tabernacle today. He indwells his people. His people are us, right? We are the church. We are where God, where God dwells. Um, Hebrews 10.10 10 says, By his will, we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We've been made holy through Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, if we trust him. And we're a kingdom of priests today. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, and this is Peter speaking to the church there in, in, in Asia Minor, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this whole idea from back in Exodus where they're to be a kingdom of priests, guess what? We're to be that kingdom of priests today. We are a kingdom of priests. So talked earlier about the roles of the, of the priest. To reflect God to the people is one of the roles. So the challenge for us today is if we're a priest, how are we doing reflecting God to people? How are we set apart in doing that? Um, the choices we make, the priorities we set, the ways we choose to spend our time, our money. How are we doing reflecting God? Another role of the priest was to make provision between, to, to help people find the atonement, right? How are we doing connecting people to their, their means of atonement, which is Christ? Are we helping people to connect that way? sharing the good news of Jesus and his atoning work on the cross. And then third, interceding between God and the people. The priests had that responsibility. We as priests also have that responsibility. We have the ability to lift one another up in prayer. We have the ability to 
serve one another, love one another, to see when others are hurting and try to meet those needs, to provide for those who are in need. So those are my thoughts this morning, just on the Leviticus, on holiness, what it means to be a priest that we all are. And I hope each of you can take something away from that this morning. Thank you. Good morning. So my talk is going to be on Romans 12, 2. And it's, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I have a different translation in my mind where you are able to discern the good and perfect will of God. Right? So I want to unpack that a little bit. But questions kind of come up into my mind, you know, kind of when I read that is like, so let's come from a perspective of a, a born again believer where in us is the Holy Spirit. Right, that incorruptible seed, that divine nature, that we have the imputed righteousness of Christ and the imported righteousness of Christ, because that divine nature is living within us. So why, if I have a renewed heart, do I have to have a renewed mind? Right? So there's part of me that's thinking, if that divine nature is in there, then why would I sin? Right? And it's because we still have flesh. Right? We still have that divine nature, but we still have that flesh. So I have this imagery where I'm looking at my own heart, right? And I'm opening the door to the heart, and I see this big room, and all the walls are white. Right? It's that divine nature, right? And the big windows and bright lights coming through, and that bright light's just illuminating the white walls, right? This is just incorruptible, pure, divine nature that I've been blessed with. And now I have to decide what do I put in that room? Right? Am I putting in that room the things of God, the Word of God? Or am I bringing things of the world into that room? Am I polluting it? Am I tainting that? Right? Slightly separate um, analogy, but the same thing. Still my heart. Now I have two dogs that are fighting in my heart. And, and there's a big dog uh, that's my flesh. And then there's a smaller dog that's the Holy Spirit. And they're warring and it's going on and on and on. And somebody may ask, well, which one wins? Well, the one that wins is the one you feed more, right? Full disclosure, my wife doesn't like the idea of the Holy Spirit being a little dog. So I want you to concentrate more on feeding the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, where you're communing with God and He's feeding back to you revelations and understanding and illumination of the Word. And this is where you get to commune with God in, in, in real time. So the devil throws some challenges uh, to us because if we look at the world, we're to hate the world, right? There's two characteristics of a transformed life. And one of those characteristics is nonconformity to the world, right? We need to hate the world. If we don't hate the world, then, you know, we're at enmity with God, right? We're enemies of God. So we have to hate evil and hate the things of the world. And the other characteristic um, is to be changed from within, right? So those are those characteristics. But the world is the realm of Satan right now. And he's got three big plays there. Right? He's got the, the, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, 
in a prideful life. And none of these are from the Father. All of these things are going to fade away. All of these things were present in the Garden of Eden when Eve looked at the apple and said, it looks good, right? The lust of the eye tastes good, right? The lust of the flesh, right? In the pride of life, I can be like God. Well, how much harder is it today when you start to hear words like bots, AI, algorithms, right? Corporate media, where it doesn't matter where in the world you are, the same words are repeated over and over and over again. You knew it was a lie to begin with, but the 30th time you go, maybe it's true, right? There's a conditioning of us in the world that takes us away from God and tries to separate us from God. If you go in and do a search in, in, in YouTube and you look at related videos, systematically they start moving you away from God and further into the world. So we can't have conformity to that. And you can see even in, in Peter it says, don't let the world shape and mold you, right? You have to change uh, from within. So even uh, churches and where they're located have an impact. So you have some external forces uh, going on as well. So if you look back uh, at the Catholic Church, over time they started to take on the characteristics of Rome. So they started to have the spirit of the Roman Empire as well as the organi organizational structure. In medieval times you saw nationalism starting to creep in to the Lutheran Church and the Calvinistic churches and even today from a culture standpoint, our ideals and our morals are shifting and ebbing and flowing and it's actually creeping its way into the church. Thank you, God, that that's not happening here because we hold under the authority of Scripture above, above all else. Amen to that. And the other thing is we have to be transformed from within. So if you think about when Jesus took up James and John and Peter, up on top of the mountain, he transfigured before them, where his face was shown as bright as the sun. His clothes were like bleached. That's the transformation that's supposed to be happening within us. Right? We're, you can't hide a city on a hill. We're supposed to reflect the greatness and glory of God in all that we do. So there's some basic characteristics that should be present in a transformed life. One of those is humility, right? Not thinking too highly of ourselves. Uh, the other is usefulness. So we've all been given gifts according to our faith and we're to use them, right? Whether it's ministering, evangelism, mercy, teaching, whatever it is, we're to use those gifts for the glory of God. Uh, love, right? Love is to be sincere, right? You're to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. You think about zeal and having a fervent spirit. We should be joyous because our hope is in the Lord. Patience, and although we endure uh, tough times, it does create patience uh, in us. We're to be prayerful. We're to pray without ceasing. We're to be generous. If we have material means to help somebody in need, we're not to, we're have to, not to have a hardened heart towards them. We need to help folks that we can. Being hospitable is just being generous to strangers you know, and guests. Forgiving, and this is a tough one, you know, in the church because we've all gone through trauma or traumatic, you know, experience, and sometimes we can endure persecution, but having the right mental attitude towards the one persecuting us is a little tougher, right? And that has to happen with a change within the heart, not the conditions kind of external to it. And we need to be compassionate and we need to be peaceable, right? So, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. 
So the question is, is how are we doing in this regard? Do we manifest these character traits? Is this what we're, where we're at? And if the answer is not so much, right? Well, God's given us some instruction. He's saying, do not be conformed by this world. Transform yourself with the renewing of your mind. Oh, my scripture. That you would know my good and perfect will for you. That's it. Thank you. Good morning, church. Who likes a mystery? Who likes secrets? Who likes knowing secrets? Well, we have a scripture today that will talk about that a little bit. Um, Colossians um, 1, 25 um, through 27. Wherefore, I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which have been hid from the ages, from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of his glory in this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, it's easy to see why this word it was translated as mystery, because the Greek is mysterion, which is very close in uh, sounding a word, right? A lot of words that we have in the Bible are transliteration of the Greek. And um, so it's easy to see how they get mystery out of mysterion. But according to James Strong, you know, Strong's Concordance, he also had a, uh, a new Strong's expanded dictionary of Bible words. And he puts it this way. Mysterion in the New Testament, it denotes not the mysterious as with the English word, but that which being outside the range of unassisted natural apprehension can be made known only by divine revelation and is made known in a manner and at a time appointed by God. So according to usage, this word is more like a secret. So God kept this secret hid from the ages. You might ask, well, why would God keep something like this a secret? I mean, this is pretty good stuff, right? However, it's a, it's a known tactic in military terms that you don't let your enemy know what you're going to do. You have to keep the secret, right? And that's where the spies come in, people trying to figure out what's, who's doing what and sneaking in the dark and listening to, to the walls and stuff. But we get an answer from this as to why God would have had to keep this a secret. We get a glimpse of it in Ephesians 3. It says, how this mystery, secret, was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into this mystery, the secret of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. And has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, secret, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, 
Now, in Corinthians, he, um, Paul puts a little, a little bit more emphasis on this. He goes, uh, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for had they, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, so God in his plan had a, um, a plan for salvation for us, to rescue, rescue us from this uh, burden of sin that uh, we had gotten ourselves into through human nature back in uh, Genesis. And so, had the, had the devil known what God's plan was, he would not have crucified Jesus because I'm pretty sure he would much rather have dealt with just that one entity rather than having to deal with each and every person who has believed the word of God and has accepted Christ into their hearts and having that same ability that Christ had Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? So, so now, instead of having one person, everywhere there's a believing believer, there's a potential to be dealing with somebody who has the same capabilities that Jesus Christ had on this planet. I mean, Jesus Christ himself said, greater things than these shall you do, right? So was he just talking, or was he, did he actually mean what he said? Um, so... One of the words, the rulers here, so the rulers had, had they known. Uh, so who are these rulers? The scholars are divided on whether or not these were men like Pilate and Caiaphas or Herod, or whether they were the devil and his demons. And I, I kind of got out of what I'm a little nervous up here. Uh, but basically we can glean from the text that most likely these guys would not have cared whether the Jews are going to be partakers of the same promise as the Gentiles or vice versa. Um, so now, wherever there's a, anybody who accepts Christ, Jew nor Gentile, now has that um, Christ in them. And so now this, that this uh, sacred secret has been revealed, it's no longer a secret. It, it could be known by all. So the interesting thing here is that, you know, God had to keep this a secret all this time in order for him to be able to put his plan into place. Now it's the devil who's trying to keep the secret because he doesn't want the believers to know what power potentially they have. <coughs> So um, one thing, you, you know, people put these little uh, slogans on their bathroom mirrors and uh, what a good one to put on your mirror. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. I wanted to share some thoughts on um, Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 through 13. 
It's uh, from this passage that we derive the Lord's Prayer. We say this prayer often in our worship and with the Spirit's help. I hope to share why I am so grateful that we do. In the verses leading in, Jesus teaches us not to pray in ways simply to impress others, not to praise or, or to use just a lot of extra words, empty words. The message seems to be to keep prayer simple, to keep it honest and genuine. Because God, as he explains, God already knows our needs. And the prayer that Jesus follows that immediately with is poetic. It's simple and deep. Jesus begins with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed means holy, as Don shared earlier. To be set apart, apart from corruption, defilement, and purity. Our, God, our prayers go to a God set apart from sin. We who pray this prayer have known sin. Yet Jesus teaches us to call God Father in heaven. So these words take my mind when I'm praying straight to the gospel message. Christ shed his blood for our sins. By his grace, through our faith, we are forgiven. And even more so, God adopts us as his children, giving us the right to call him Father. We, we can approach his throne then with a boldness, knowing that we have a loving Father we're approaching. It's also a reminder, I think, though, that as his children, we bear his family name, his holy name. And so when I pray this, I'm also asking for his help in my life to keep his name holy with my actions. So that's the first eight words. Hopefully I'm giving a glimpse of the, the riches and the depths I see. He continues with, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Kingdoms have kings. And here I see Jesus reminding me to recognize God as sovereign, my Lord, my King. With his help, I seek his kingdom. I seek his righteousness, even from earth. Also, it is not our will that we're praying for. It's God's will in all things. And here I see Jesus reminding me to submit to my sovereign Lord more than just recognize him. And again, I need God's help to do that in this fallen world. Moving on. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus reminds us that God provides for our bodily needs. We ask for his provision. We need not worry. These words also steer me away from a couple of traps. One, mistaking wants for needs. Bread is a simple meal. It meets needs. And the second is that I do not provide for myself. While I have to work for provision, I need to remember that every good thing comes from God. A thought which leads me to thankfulness, contentment, 
It's spiritual nourishment. Next, Jesus shares, and forgive us not our debts, or excuse me, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. So what debts do we owe God? Well, there is that matter of sin that we've heard about. And again, that takes my mind straight to the gospel message when I pray. The assurance of forgiveness, salvation. But here there's an added condition that God should forgive me in the same way that I forgive others. Sometimes I find forgiveness hard. These words help me steer, help steer me away from additional traps. Traps of stubbornness, self-righteousness, pride. These words remind me that I need the Holy Spirit in me to, to truly forgive. I need to practice relying on his Holy Spirit to learn to love in the same way that he loves, unconditionally, loving even my enemies. Lastly, Jesus shares, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are caught up in a spiritual rebellion. Satan is an adversary who rebelled against God and seeks to enlist us as volunteers in, in his ranks. He tempts us, finding our weaknesses, luring us to sin with mirages of happiness, of power, security, whatever works. In Jesus' words here, I see images of the Good Shepherd, our loving Father, who leads us sheep from the paths of temptation and with his truth protects us, delivering us from the predator of our soul. So those are the words that Matthew recorded. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we add some additional words, not found in Matthew, nor in the shorter form of the, of the prayer that's in Luke. We add, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. This doxology praises God. It affirms his nature and his identity. I pray that I have shared the riches I find in Jesus's prayer. I noticed as I was sitting here today that it encompasses this, many of the same themes that my brother shared before. Prayer is a personal thing. We all approach the narrow gate from different places. We see different things in it and feel different things. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, I encourage you to think about the deeper meanings of the words, the riches they hold for you on your walk. Now I'd like to pray the Lord's Prayer and similar to what we're doing today, do it a little different. I'm going to add pauses for us to do just that. Think about what those words mean to us in our life, in our walk. The cadence is going to be off, so join with me if you feel it, or if the Spirit leads you to be silent. Follow what the Spirit guides you. Let's begin. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name.
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Ron.